Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn and has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Earlier today, I was sitting in the sun with a pint of Guinness right in front of me. Um, something that Irish people tend to do when the sunshine comes out, they decide, you know what would be best? That is if we took a lot of alcohol on board and dehydrated ourselves. Irish people don't really belong in the sun. Something I've said before on the podcast, there's many places we don't belong in, and in the sun is one of them. We belong in dark, dingy pubs in the half-light. So there I was, with my pint of Guinness, thinking to myself, what is the podcast going to be about this week? You may have noticed last week I just took a day off. I do apologize. It's not often that I call in sick to work. Well, it was something like that. Um, Sometimes we just need a little break. But I was sitting there with my pint of Guinness thinking to myself, what will the podcast be about? What will it be about? Um, And... Then an email popped into my inbox, or rather one I neglected to look at because the previous weekend we'd been away playing some gigs with Primordial. Thank you if you came and saw us. They were great. Um, And it was from Deaf Forever magazine, and it seemed that I'd missed the deadline. And it was about the song The Coffin Ships, the song that has, I guess, become the signature song or one of of Primordial. Um, And it was basically saying that the song had been voted, I'm not sure by whom, but had been included in the top 200 metal songs ever made. Um, Don't know if that was number 172 or number 64 or number 12 or whatever. And could I comment on the song? Could I send some old pictures, etc.? And I realised I'd missed the deadline. And then I thought, well, maybe I should grab the bull by the horns of podcasting and deal with the greatest tragedy um, in, well, in Irish history, but also, I suppose, as a, you know, as an Irish man, to deal with what is 
I suppose, the greatest, well, I don't suppose, I know, the greatest tragedy in Irish history, and that is the potato famine. And I thought, come on now, stand up, grab the thorns, grab the bull by the horns of a very complex issue and try and do a podcast about it because we've been singing this song for almost 20 years it's on the album the gathering wilderness which i think is 2005 or 2006 um so i'm going to talk about the potato famine about the coffin ships um try and go into a little bit of history of it um the practical things that happened um a few sideways glances and looks at things because the famine was such a massive thing that it still hangs over irish society as a shadow um, I really think that until the 1990s, when we had a sort of economic recovery in 92, 93, 95. Um, and I think for the first time ever, we had a growing population, as in the population in the late 70s in Ireland was still, I think, sitting just under 3 million, 2.9 million, where the famine, um, when it began in 1845, if you were to look at the rough census of the people, uh, the Irish population sat at about 8.3, 8.4, maybe even 8.5 million people in 1845. So from 1845 to 1979, um, the population, you know, never even reached half of what it was. And it continued to hemorrhage people as uh, the huge exodus of Irish people caused by the financial circumstances of the country in the 1980s um, just massive exodus the brain drain one could say of irish society only until the uh, green sprouts of what then became the celtic tiger in the mid 90s let's say 92 is the moment i think as an irish person where you noticed something is changing in irish society there's a new generation of people who aren't looking to escape immediately and that was maybe it took until the 1990s for ireland almost to recover and I won't say it fully recovered because it's still part of our um, it's an innate part of Irish consciousness our relationship to the famine so that's what I'm going to try and talk about today but I was sitting there with my pint of Guinness looking out the window thinking about what I was going to talk about and as I began to think about our relationship to the famine to what was called the great hunger I, be I began to uncover a few details. I did a little bit of, you know, research, a little reading back, because you get taught this in school. Of course, it's a, it's a big part of our history, but there's moments you forget. And one of the great misconceptions, I suppose, outside of certain circles of Ireland, is that, um, you know, there was no food in Ireland. But the Lord Lieutenant in Dublin asked the English government in Parliament, I think in the year 1848. And the famine didn't really begin to subside until 1852. It started in 1845. But two or three years into the famine, he asked the uh, English Parliament, could we perhaps stop uh, producing Guinness and whiskey for a while in order to divert funds, to divert energy, to divert, of course, wheat and grain and all the things that go into making alcohol for maybe just... Um, six months or three months or nine months or even a year to try and divert those things to feed the people. And the English Parliament said, no, you cannot do that. And so there I was sat with my pint of Guinness and you realise that throughout the famine, Ireland was producing food to, be, to send to England um, and, and arguably enough food to probably feed millions of those people. And certainly we were exporting Guinness throughout this time. Maybe you've seen 
um, on a pint of Guinness. I think it says 1759. So Guinness had already existed for almost 100 years, if I've not got the dates incorrect. I'm kind of plucking them out of my head, as is my want. If you listen to Agitators Anonymous, you know that it's a little bit random off the top of my head. But it did strike me, and it's something I'd never really, I hadn't really thought about since I read about the famine when I was a young teenager, and it's part in Irish history, was the fact that Ireland was seen as the sort of breadbasket of the United Kingdom, because the Act of Union in 1800, which more or less dissolved our um, parliamentary, well, it kind of dissolved the power of our own parliament here. The Act of Union, which included Ireland within the uh, Union of Great Britain and Ireland, uh, the United Kingdom, um, which, by the way, would have stated that Ireland should have been more, you know, taken care of or looked after. Oh, wrong words, wrong words. We're going to get into that. We're going to get into that. But the fact that we just ex- we're still exporting Guinness and whiskey and um, meat and eggs and dairy produce all the time. This was just flowing out of the country while the country was starving um, was something that I'd just forgotten. So I downed my pint of Guinness there in the sun, um, you know, dehydrating myself, which as a ginger, we all know could be fatal. And I thought, get back to your bunker and make a podcast about the Irish famine. So this is Agitators Anonymous. I'm Alan Averill, your hostess with The Leastest. And today's episode will be about the Irish famine, the Great Hunger. We once played in New York, I remember, maybe nine or ten years ago, and we were introducing this song, and I just heard, Fuck the Potato Famine! from the back of the venue, which caused a kind of ripple of laughter. And I turned back towards the drums and looked at Kieran. He just looked at me through his hair and went, Fuck's sake! And I don't know whether that fuck the potato famine was, you know, um, fuck your potato famine or fuck the potato famine. But either way, it um, punctured a rather serious moment of introduction. And the reality is probably I should have uh, tackled a podcast about it a bit more than I'm going to do now. But anyway, when Kieran first came up with the, the chords, the picked introduction of the coffin ships, um, you could tell it was something special. Um, it, well, you could tell it was a special song or this was something that was going to be um, of, of greater magnitude than some other songs. At the time, I remember thinking to myself, this reminds me a little bit of Leonard Cohen, famous Blue Raincoat, um, an absolutely beautiful song off Songs of Love and Hate. And I still kind of see that it reminds me a little bit of that. I can see what I meant, or at least I thought what I meant. You know what I mean. Um, and at the time, I remember coming up with the vocal line and Kieran said to me, oh, I don't know if I really like the way the vocal line is going. It reminds me of a keyboard part of the first Dimmu Borger album, which still strikes me as a quite insane comment. I think my observation that his riff was a bit more like Famous Blue Raincoat is more apt than his observation that my singing was like Dimmu Borger. But we compromised and out of it came the coffin ships. I'd always wanted to write a song about the famine, about... Um, such a great tragedy but at the same time I never wanted it to be a history lesson like in the year 1845 this happened in the year 1848 this happened I never wanted it to be like that Um, I wanted it to sort of express this great tragedy but speak to people who had of course every nation has its own tragedies has its own um, incredible historical 
precedents, um, sadnesses, rebellions, uprisings, wars, and in many cases, famines that shape and model the country's consciousness and the people. Um, but I never wanted it to be uh, a lesson, a history lesson. So, so the part that is in the middle of the song with nerve and muscle and heart and brain, they are lost to Ireland, they are lost in vain, um, was actually originally written on a, uh, basically like a gravestone, a mass grave in a town called Skibbereen. Um, and the whole middle of the section of the song was what I saw first. I was on a trip around the country and I wrote that down and I thought that could be the centerpiece of a song about the famine, about the great hunger. So for eagle-eyed listeners, eagle-eyed listeners, yes, indeed, um, you may remember I did a podcast, it could be 120 episodes ago, about the plantations. And I suppose we need to go back to the Anglo-Norman 12th century um, conquest of Ireland. They were, you, you could call that the first um, Ireland, the first English colony. This is like 1140, 1130, 1150. And they, I suppose, were the first um, colonizers of the country. And so the kind of English rule or English, you know, whatever you want to call it, occupation, interference, whatever you want to call it, began in the sort of middle of the 12th century. You may go back and have a little look for that podcast. It was about the plantations, which was basically the movement of um, English gentry into owning vast tracts of Irish land and Irish people basically becoming subsistence farmers upon the land of what became absentee landlords, i.e. Um, landed gentry in the United Kingdom or in England who just owned vast tracts of Irish land and the people lived as peasants paying rent or whatever or subsistence upon those tracts of land. This will become important as we move through the centuries. But I suppose we have to sort of examine the humble potato, the humble spud, um, with the main a variation of which was called the Irish lumber, I think, which had no resistance to the blight, to the uh, to the actual disease that was brought in, I think, from the South Americas, because there would have been greater shipping and trading routes. So somewhere from South America, this particular blight came um, in the middle of the 19th century and began to uh, ravage its way through the potato flight, plight. But, but in the late 16th century, Sir Walter Raleigh, I suppose you've got to go back to him, he introduces the potato to um, England and therefore to Ireland. Originally, it was seen as a kind of luxury food, a luxury food item. He, I think he brought it from South America. Um, but what they found was that it could literally grow in any soil. It could grow, even grow in sand. It was incredibly resistant to um, all sorts of weather. It was incredibly just a resistant crop and therefore it became the food staple of Irish people. Now there's a kind of a misconception um, and there was no doubt that Ireland was a poor rural agrarian society which is people farming off the land in 1840 but the people were not unhealthy so to say in the sense that there was um, their diet being potatoes being buttermilk being sort of dairy orientated and um, they weren't like calorie deficient waifs and strays waiting for the merest blow of wind to knock them down. They were resilient people. And like I said, there had been something of a population explosion in the previous 50 years um, that had left the population sitting at about 8.4 million people in 1845. 
But as we'll see, this story is really one of um, colonization. It's about ancient prejudices. It's about religious um, divisions. And it's about the changing politics in Westminster and how uh, one simple stroke of a pen can cause the death of thousands, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. Um, And people can be insulated from those decisions, as we often see and have just seen in the last couple of years in our own societies, in our own cultures. This happens all of the time. And that is one of the greatest sort of tragedies of this whole thing. But to go back to brass tacks, to sort of simple observations, um, in the 1800, the Act of Union, um, you may know, you may have walked down O'Connell Street in Dublin. Well, that's named after Daniel O'Connell, who was the most famous um, objector to the Act of Union. But by the time the family comes around, he's an ill man. He's almost 75 years old or so. Um, his huge uh, presence, which loomed over Irish nationalism in the early 19th century, is coming to an end. And there really is, at the time of the famine, a sort of nationalist vacuum. Um, there isn't many... There isn't really many strong leaders who are willing to try and take up the mantle and um, unite people or become a pinpoint of resistance. But the but the Act of Union states we have direct rule from Westminster. Um, and it's worth saying at this time that Ireland is Catholic and that England is Protestant and that England is a monarchy. Um, Ireland doesn't become a republic, you know, the Republic of Ireland. You've heard me say that with Primordial. We are Primordial from the Republic of Ireland. It just sort of scans better when you say that than we are Primordial from Ireland. I like saying that Republic of bit. Um, but Ireland, England, of course, is a monarchy. So so to quote something from the, the, um, the Times of London at that moment, I mean, in, it wasn't until 1829, I will add, that Catholics got their first seat in Parliament in um, the United Kingdom. But it seems like from 1829 up to the famine, it, it there wasn't many voices of, um, like I said, Daniel O'Connell, who would have been one of the main, you know, the, like I said, this huge looming figure over Irish politics. As he, as his uh, demise, as he reached the end of his life, nobody was taking up the mantle um, of his, it, there was something of a nationalist power vacuum. But the Times of London states, before our merciful intervention, the Irish, nat- the Irish nation were a wretched, indolent, half-starved tribe of savages. They've never approached the standard of the civilised world. Um, and this is how people referred to the Irish. Um, you may be familiar or not familiar with the great American writer Thomas Sowell. Um, some of you should maybe have a look at what he says about the Irish, and the first slaves of Europe, all this kind of thing. Um, it certainly is, like, to put it into context, even the Romans, although they seem to have sent a couple of people, um, sent a couple of people, yeah, huh, so go over and check over there. No, even the Romans never conquered Ireland. It's as if they kind of went, ah, not sure what's there. We'll just leave it be. Um, Ireland was always treated as this sort of serf citizenship, as this sort of um, barely human, savage sort of outpost, sitting on the edge of Europe, just geographically isolated, left to its own devices. Certainly when the Normans came as they built castles across the country, inside the castle walls, okay. Outside was seen as a sort of savage free-for-all. But it's important to frame the relationship between England and Ireland at this time um, in those words. As I said, the Times of London, before our merciful intervention, they were a tribe of savages, is basically the inference. 
So Ireland was seen as a sort of rural backwater, basically somewhere to just take resources from, a vassal state. And this is what I said at the start with my pint of Guinness sitting in front of me. The food exports from Ireland to the uh, United Kingdom were huge. There was this thing called the Corn Laws of the early 1800s, which was like a sort of embargo on export, on the export export of grain into Britain. So Britain just takes it from Ireland. This is an important thing to realise, is that, like I said, during, while the, basically while the country was starving, Ireland was still exporting uh, so much food to um, the United Kingdom. So in 1845, also, what, so what definitely happens during this moment between 1845 and 1850 is that the weather and the winter seem to be incredibly bad in Ireland. And this doesn't help things, of course, because the potato famine or the potato crop doesn't just fail once, it fails again and again and again. Um, and, and of course, these absentee landlords, the, the gentrified class of England, um, realise that there's far more, far more money to be made from breeding cattle on the land and moving the, uh, the serfs, the subsistence farmers, onto smaller and smaller plots of land um, with poorer and poorer soil. And this may sound really quite strikingly strange to think that, hang on, so there was enough food really within the country to deal with um, to deal with the potato blight that was incoming. And realistically, it was all being exported. Yeah, that is a quite shocking statistic. Let me turn the page here. That's a great Metallica song, isn't it? Or rather cover. Well, as Alan Partridge said, well, if you will be fussy eaters, of course... Indeed. So why did it all happen? There's many reasons. There's a, there's a multitude of reasons. Like I said, the, the potato itself was called the Irish lumper. And this, um, this blight, which was probably exported or imported from South America amidst the guano deposits, causes the entire potato crop to fail. And as we move through the years, the, the failure begins to rise to almost 100% of the crop fails. But of course, what compounds so many of the issues is the politics that are happening in Westminster. In 1845, the Prime Minister of England is called Robert Peel. Um, You've probably heard of the Peelers, at least. Their name is um, within some uh, songs of the time, Irish songs. And he was a conservative. And he lived in Ireland from 1812 to 1817. Um, And oddly enough, looking back, he had a sort of understanding of Irish society and he did try and bring in measures to combat the uh, the famine, to combat the blight. Now, of course, the word conservative now has connotations for some people. It happens to be, it will happen to be the Whig government who treat Ireland even more harshly. But Robert Peel attempts to enact emergency measures. These are called the Corn Laws. Um, and he enacts workhouses where people can go and work for grain and tries to bring in emergency measures. Of course... They aren't really um, enough. And when you, of course, understand the amount of food that's being exported at a time when he's trying to bring in these measures to, uh, to alleviate the plight. But in 1846, Robert Peel resigns and he almost in that action um, signs the death warrant of many, many Irish people. And as the crops fail and fail and fail once again, of course, it you have to get across the fact that the people are um, sick. They're, you know, cholera, 
typhoid fever follows famine you can have that as a song title if you wish and so the workhouses themselves prove to be proved to be almost like death farms because how can people work on these farms you know uh, often under huge pressure hours for hours and hours and hours when they're also sick and not receiving enough food to compensate um, for all of the sicknesses that are ravaging through Irish society so thousands and thousands of people are dying from cholera they're dying from other diseases you know if you've ever been to Ireland um, of course there was mass deforestation because uh, again as I said Ireland's seen as this vassal state where you could take resources from um, forests and timber were just cut down to be exported but also if you've been you've, you've even when you've landed in the plane um, maybe in Galway or something Ireland's network of these small little stone walls everywhere many of these were built during the famine um, if you've been in a park in Ireland and seen all these follies, if you've been um, on land that was once part of the gentrified classes that they owned, you will see these strange things. They used to call them um, these small odd buildings, follies, they call them. I'm not going to say that word again. And these were built by people during the famine for the gentry. And many of these walls were built by famine people, just endless walls going nowhere, stone walls. You could almost see it as um, Irish people working on a chain gang in order to get their bowl of grain at the end of the day. But practical things are happening. Market forces are happening. There's less food, so there are higher prices. And the winter of 1846, 1847, proves to be the coldest winter yet. In fact, it's called Black 47, which originally was the title of the... Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. 
coffin ships of the song. That was the original title I had in my head. Um, but I think that also Black 47 is an album or a song by Clannad, maybe. But, of course, many of the landlords of this, um, you know, the absentee landlords, um, and this is off the top of my head, but you may have heard the word boycott, to boycott something. Oh, this comes from a Lord boycott, um, where Irish people would try to get together as some form of union to avoid being evicted from their homes. But I'll get to the evictions because they were also a terrible thing, which began to follow on as more and more absentee landlords decided that they didn't want these as a sick and indigent um, farming communities on their land and that it was best to just get rid of them, knock down their houses and just breed cattle as an example. So then, of course, hundreds of thousands of people, if not, they say up to half a million people were evicted by their, uh, from their homes by 1850 to create this entire wretched homeless class wandering the country as well. So they introduced the poor law system, which is workhouses. And these, of course, are um, brutal conditions. And they, the, poor, the uh, workhouses continue as a part of Irish society for the next 50, 60, 70 years. Um, there's very odd things are happening. Stories are coming out in the international press and Ireland begins to get um, financial donations from such an odd mixture of people. The Quakers send money, who are fundamentally, I think, a Protestant, um, a Protestant religious order. Um, foreign charity begins to come in and it's sort of unprecedented at the time. Um, the Cherokee Indians, the Sultan of Turkey, Queen Victoria actually sends money. A, a young lawyer called Abraham Lincoln sends money to the Irish. But it doesn't really deal with the desperate plight of what's happening in the country. Now, I know other podcasts have probably handled the famine and you'll hear sad violin music and wailing and the gnashing of teeth in the background from those who um, probably take a bit more time and money to do their podcast. But it's hard to really get across how grim things were. And of course, it took a while, as I said, the nationalist vacuum of a strong leader didn't really happen. But certainly um, a huge treasure like this sows the seeds of resentment and resistance, which were to come to fruition as we move towards the end of the century and into the next century. But maybe that's for another podcast. But the politics of Westminster come to define the situation even more. The Whigs um, replace the Conservatives. Uh, um, Lord Russell is elected and he, or rather, he is the leader of the Whigs and there is an election coming and this is like 1846 or so and there's an election coming and who does he really want support from? Because don't forget an election at this time in 1846 um, there's a kind of common misconception that everyone has the vote or all men have the vote but certainly working class people um, don't and it's just the gentrified classes who do and he wants their support and certainly support from well actually let me just consider something and fact check myself no uh, the what do we call it the great reform act was 1832 so actually yes working class uh, men or some of them just did have the vote only um, 13 years by then I must look into the actually the English electoral system to actually see how many people would have voted in an 1846 election um, based on the population. But maybe that's another podcast. And also, I'm just, you know, now now I'm talking to myself. Anyway, back to back to the subject matter at hand. Um, 
Lord Russell, there's an election in 1846 in uh, English Parliament, and he, of course, wants the support of the landed gentry. And what appeals to them? Well, of course, they want to bring their own costs down and they want more taxes. So he imposes stricter relief measures um, on Ireland at the time. And it sort of betrays a very callous disregard for the situation. Uh, Prince George in 1846 famously tells the Irish to eat seaweed. That would be a nutritious meal. But perhaps the most infamous name in all of this, um, he stole Trevelyan's corn so his young would see the morn. You've probably heard that line in the fields of Athen Rye, um, a great Irish traditional song of the time dealing with the subject of the famine. It's Sir Charles Trevelyan. Now, his name is infamous in Irish history, and he is probably, I suppose directly responsible at least the measures that he signs into rule he's directly responsible for the deaths of well many many people he's a he's a sort of upwardly mobile um fastly rising um civil servant he had come from india before this if i'm not mistaken and if you want to look into the uh, east india company which is really the sort of first multinational and the brutalization of um the Indian people, well, that's a whole different story. And it's absolutely insane that at one stage only a couple of hundred civil servants managed to rule over the entire nation of India. But he came um, with the much of the same ideas of many uh, civil servants or many people involved in colony at the time. And the idea that the British Empire was the civilizing force in the world and that the subjects they oppressed were really little more than noble savages. And certainly... He was a man who uh, hated Catholicism, saw it as a sort of vulgar mysticism, and he really had no um, consideration for the Irish as equals or, you know, uh, really, or even as equal servants under the um, rule of the United Kingdom or of Westminster. He thought, and this is quite uh, extreme, I think, but I think you can say this, he certainly viewed the famine or came to view the famine as a sort of um, tempering force to uh, cull the numbers of the Irish who he thought um, had sort of, their population was maybe expanding a bit too much. It's almost a eugenical or, you, you know, uh, an opinion inspired by a sort of very harsh disregard for humanity. Could we call it some sort of early eugenics? I think that certainly some early uh, ideas of eugenicism is that a word? Am I just saying words now? Um, are born out of empire and born out of colony and born out of suppression of people that the um, the empire looked upon as inferior at the time anyway, which they certainly did of the Irish. And he was the head of the UK Treasury for the whole time. of He stayed during governments, but certainly when the Whigs came in, he felt more empowered. And, and in 1847... Um, I mean, you can look at this as a sort of never let a great crisis go to waste. But he says that the great evil is not the famine, but of the selfish and perverse, um, turbulent nature of the Irish people themselves. And like I said, Trevelyan almost sees the famine as a natural curb for an out of control population. Um, so you can see what's happening in 1846. The nature of things is changing that Robert Peel may be tried on some level to try and understand and help what was happening. But once he departed the scene, you have um, figures who really looked down upon the Irish as, well, inferior. Certainly, it's racist. 
well, would we call it racist? I suppose the Irish race, the English race, it's complicated because it, it strikes me as being something something um, different, something kind of greater than that almost. It's this innate feeling of superiority that comes from colony and empire to see your, the subjects and servants or as lesser people. We can argue the toss about what that means, but it entirely frames Westminster's, Westminster's view and at least the landed gentry's view of what's happening in Ireland. And also they're, as I said, they're absentee landlords, so they're not there essentially on the ground, many of them, to see what's happening. So they begin to um, close the food depots um, and Trevelyan's response is pretty much a death sentence for hundreds of thousands of people. Now, of course, as I said at the top of this, when I, you know, used my cutesy um, observation about the pint, the pint of Guinness, um, what people kind of forget and what I'd forgotten was that uh, there was no let up in the food exports from Ireland. There were millions of eggs being exported. There was dairy, there was meat, there was all sorts of stuff still coming out of Ireland. Ireland was being used as this sort of breadbasket while the people starved, which is a quite incredible situation when you really think about it. And you may ask, how come people weren't out fishing? Um, there, there is a, it does kind of break your brain to to consider this massive disconnect, but somehow it seems that the sort of civil service bureaucracy that ruled over the bigger um, cities, they just had no will to resist um, the the laws which required them to export everything to the United Kingdom. Like I said, the Lord Lieutenant in Dublin asks um, Westminster, "Can we stop?" just for a moment temporarily and redirect resources, wheat, grain, and the government says no. So while the famine is raging, people are dropping dead everywhere, entire um, villages, entire small towns just devastated. We are still exporting food out of the country. Yet looking back through reports of the time, you see that the Times of London uh, states that the Irish continue to filch, which is an interesting word. Um, we may try and bring that back, although it might cause some confusion in certain circumstances. Uh, filching? Well, anyway, the Irish filch. They, they continue to filch off the UK. It almost frames them as parasites. But yet, of course, the Act of Union of 1800 um, would have indicated that they were, I suppose, equal in status under the United Kingdom. But certainly not. That's not the way they're viewed. And in July 1847, uh, we have the Poor Law Extension. And this almost signs the death warrant, as I said, of so many more people. Um, Ireland, well, what the, what the Poor Law Extension really states is that um, Ireland must pay for its own famine relief. That Ireland, you know, that the, the, the money that must be found should be found from within Ireland. So, of course, local taxes go up. And all these absentee, all these landlords, absentee or not, um, they realised that there is more money to be made from uh, evicting your tenants. So what we have in 1848 is a huge rise in rent, of course, and because they need the money to pay for this, uh, this uh, poor law extension. The money must be raised within Ireland so Ireland can pay for um the famine that is raging at this time. And so rents go up, the cost of everything goes up. And what happens is that almost 500,000 people, they say, are just evicted. As I said, this is where you get the, the boycott reference. But evictions just go up. So you have the hot tumblers, men, basically hired thugs, uh, become known as 
hired to just destroy uh, small cottages and huts of the farmers who are subsistence farmers living on the land. And people are just literally end up living in hedges under bridges. Um, there is a massive swathe of people who are just made homeless by the famine. So now not only are they, of course, hungry, um, they are now homeless as well. All the, or everything is now set for a massive humanitarian disaster, which is exactly what unfolds. So by 1851, uh, the population of Ireland, I, I think you could say was 8.3 or 4 million. A third to a quarter of that is gone by uh, by 1851. The numbers are difficult to say, but around 1.2, 1.3 million people died in that uh, time frame. The rest uh, emigrated, and that's where we get to the coffin ships. But reading back, there's something very striking about how um, a society, of course, treats the poorest and the most vulnerable, and how in times of uh, extreme need, the authorities hire people from within those communities to destroy those communities, as I said, the hot tumblers. And there's a lot of very complex moral, um, social issues that I think will always plague Ireland, whether it we come to um, issues of... Because the famine then ties into the power of the church rises after after the famine as the the piece of the, the fractured nature of Irish society. People look towards the church, which of course then you end up with this hundred odd years of institutionalized child abuse and the treatment of women and all sorts of things which become sort of endemic within an Irish society that seems so cowed and fearful in the post-famine years. It takes a long time for a sort of nationalist resurgence or sort of a pride in the country to, uh, which you could say didn't happen even until the 1990s, to return. And there's a sort of bail bucked, like the poor mouth. I often talk about this and how I've talked about this in interviews, a sort of Irish um, deference to positions of authority, a sort of cap in hand nature of how cowed and fearful we became of the rod of power, of the laity, um, of the empire, of all these kind of things. Like it really sort of, it seemed to gut the resistance out of Irish society for a long, long, long time. And you can directly link, I think, the famine to m so many ills of the 20th century, of the next 150 years that happened in Irish society. So now you are left with a choice, I guess, a very dark and stark choice, and that is remain and die or leave and try and start a new life. So... Like I said, remain and die or try or leave. And so that the sea voyage, you know, a lot of people left to the UK, but many people chose to go to the USA. And so um, for an awful lot of landlords, the sort of cost of having people still on your land was less than the payment of the um, whatever the the ticket was to cross the four to six week crossing to the USA. And of course, these were so many ships were commandeered that were not fit for the voyage. And it, it, it's incredible to think how many people, how many bones must be lying at the bottom of the Atlantic if they're still intact by now. I suppose not. Uh, how many bodies were dumped overboard? They say that um, fish and sharks knew they followed the ships to uh, be able to consume the bodies that were flung into the water because so many boats were not fit for purpose. I'm not sure how true that is, but it sounds it sounds 
um, sort of grimly poetic. And it's also, um, it's in the primordial song on the last album, Exile Amongst the Ruins, Sunken Lungs, which sort of deals with that kind of thing. The idea that all these bodies were just heaved off the sides of the coffin ships. Um, and, you know, starving, sick people ravaged by whatever flu and famine or cholera or typhoid or whatever diseases they were bringing on board the ship were just literally stuffed in the bowels of these boats, almost as human ballast. Um, in some cases, they were the ballast in the bowels of the boat, while those boats themselves were bringing food and exports and grain from Ireland to, for example, Canada or the USA or other countries. Uh, so the British were exporting uh, food on the same boats as people being sent to other countries to start or attempt to start if they managed to get their new lives. And these were the coffin ships, of course, where, of course, we got the name of the song. So I'm going to read something contentious. Well, it shouldn't really be contentious, but I suppose in the modern context it is. And that is from uh, Thomas Sowell's classic uh, Ethnic America. I'm going to leave out a couple of words from it because they'll probably get me into trouble if I say them. And he writes of the Irish, I saw the very extreme of human wretchedness, but I did not know, but I did not then know the condition of unfortunate Ireland, Thomas Sowell continues. And do a little bit of research on who Thomas Sowell is. He's an incredible um, academic and writer. This was not mere rhetoric. Slaves in the United States had a longer life expectancy than peasants in Ireland. They ate better and lived in cabins built of sturdier materials with more space, ventilation and privacy than the huts of contemporary Irish peasants. It is unnecessary to attempt to say who was worse off on net balance. The mere fact that a comparison could be made indicates something of the desperate poverty of Irish peasants in the 1830s. But Sowell then compares the brutality of the slave trade's Atlantic crossing with that of Irish migration. Inadequate food, water and sanitation made ocean crossings Dangerous to health and life, in the most disastrous year of all, 1847, about 20% of the huge famine immigration died en route to America or upon landing. This was about 40,000 or more dead, mostly young people in the prime of life. By comparison, the loss of life among slaves transported from Africa in British vessels in the 19th century was about 9%. Um, yeah, this is from, you know, Thomas Sowell's book. I think what it points to is just the wretched state of um, where Ireland found itself in the 1840s um, and that so many factors go into um, so many, so many dark factors go into the darkest elements of human history and that when so many, when so many things, even from the, the, the signature of a civil servant's pen like Trevelyan in, a, in a, an apartment in Westminster, all the way to the failure of a crop to the weather to there's so many contributing factors to these dark elements to these grim truths there was an uprising in 1848 um, by a bunch of people called young ireland who were almost all arrested and sent to tasmania so i wondered how many of them suffered the same fate but what's clear is ireland has no real strong nationalist leaders at the time of famine or in the immediate aftermath but it is interesting to note that the Irish Republican Brotherhood uh, was founded in 1858, not only in Ireland, but also in the USA at the same time. So, so many Irish people who had left Ireland during the famine in the USA then founded a kind of co-nationalist movement, which then, of course, gave us in time people like James Connolly, 
And many of the leaders of the rising in the early 20th century spent time um, in America or contacting America. So the impacts are huge. The Irish language suffers a huge um, drop off. We didn't really have, at least looking back as an Irish person, we didn't really have a sort of robust um, medieval uh, history to look at. We didn't really have the sort of benefits, much of the benefits of the early industrial uh, era uh, to survive. And what I'm trying to say is that when you travel around Europe and you see these old medieval squares, you can see that there was money. um, There was money, there was travel, there was um, import and export. There were great ports there were great cathedrals built there was whether you go to edinburgh or naples or i don't know vienna or budapest or wherever you're going there were this there was seeds of monarchy and empire and money in other european countries now maybe i'm being a bit romantic in my observations here but um this doesn't this is not ireland ireland doesn't have that sort of I could say the cultural backbone that other um, huge cities or countries had of the previous hundred years. Maybe they themselves had empire, had monarchy, had all of those uh, influences. Ireland, like I said, was generally this agrarian, rural backwater. And I think that uh, it left a cultural vacuum that the, that the post-famine was filled with some very dark forces. And it wasn't until 1997 that um, Tony Blair actually apologizes to the Irish for the treatment for their treatment during the famine, which, of course, uh, some people object to, which seems crazy now, the idea that somebody would object to those things. But the impacts, like I said, are huge. And I think it still hangs over our society. It hangs over our population. Um, it's still a sort of grim reminder of where we came from. Even though a post-1990s Irish society, I think, has made a sort of moral or intellectual attempt to disconnect itself from those poor, um, harsh historical facts for whatever reason. And I suppose Primordial, in its own way, was a small reaction to that uh, because a sort of element of Irish culture just wanted to leave those things in the dark past. And so to go to travel around the world and play that song, The Coffin Ships, um, it feels to me almost like a a little moment in our own small drop in the ocean of something like living history to be able to shine a little bit of a light on this terrible tragedy in our historical past um, of the collective conscience of Irish people to be able to travel around the world when you play that in Canada or America or South America or have done so in Australia to people who were the sons and daughters of those very same people who travelled from the coffin ships is quite a beautiful thing. It makes you realise that the the gift that you've been given to be able to create a piece of art or music that does such a thing and what a terrible shame it would have been to waste our time singing about zombies or fast cars or how much we could drink, even though that might have been fun. This seems to be... Um, our purpose with this song to be able to travel and play it and um, teach maybe a small bit, but also to just, uh, I suppose, unload a little bit of this emotional weight of this tragedy onto people who hear it. So that's what inspired this particular podcast. I've waffled for quite a while off the top of my head. Um, Like I said, it's not miss or disinformation. The idea of Primordial and the Coffin Ships is that it is fact and not fiction and there ain't nowhere to hide. It ain't fantasy. 
Um, so that, my friends, is my attempt at shining a little light on the um, Irish potato famine. Fuck the potato famine! As that guy from the back of the venue in New York shouted to me, fuck it indeed, my friends. This is Agitators Anonymous, episode 160-something. Until next time, over and out. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.